Good morning, everybody. Get your Bible out and open up with me to the book of Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to be. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one right there at your seat. If you're worshiping online, uh, get your Bible out right where you are and let's study God's Word together. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Several years ago, I I was challenged to write letters to my daughters. And uh, over, like, I guess, the last 15, 20 years, I have, I've done that. Normally on like big events like first day of school or graduations or, you know, some uh, significant day, I will sit down. And I, I normally don't handwrite it because I wouldn't be able to read it, all right? So I, I like type it out. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's always been a tender thing to do that because in those letters, I'll just call out something I'm proud of them and encourage them in some area. Sometimes I'll challenge them uh, to take a step in some area, but they, but they know their dad's heart, right, by reading the letters. Now, Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are letters. They're letters from Jesus to seven churches, and we know something about the heart of Jesus by reading the letters uh, of Jesus. And uh, so we're going to be diving into this. In fact, if you look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 11, you'll see this. He told John, the apostle, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. So these are seven letters to seven churches. Now, years ago, I preached a whole series on the seven letters to seven churches. It took me seven weeks to do this. I'm going to try to do it today in 30 minutes, okay? So listen fast. If that's even possible, try to listen fast, buckle your seatbelt, or we're going to cover the, the main, uh, main parts, main sections, main themes here of these letters. Now, Before I dive into the detail, let me just get back up and give you a little perspective here. Uh, These are seven letters written to actual churches. In fact, if you look at this map, you can see it's interesting that the order uh, of these seven letters fit the order of, of if you were to travel to each one. And so it's very clear that the letter was to be read here and then you travel to the next town and read the next one, read the next one. So these these were actual historical churches. And yet, while these are letters to actual historical churches that had their own issues, their own problems, their own things that they were dealing with, uh, we can still uh, benefit from these letters, right? We, they're, they're letters that are also written to us, in a sense, just like the rest of the New Testament that are often letters to certain churches, that God speaks to us even today, because many of the things that they were dealing with, we're also dealing with today. And the same things that Jesus says about those things are the same things he says about them today. Now, Every letter follows a very similar format. It starts off with the, the, the recipient, the church that's, that's going to receive the letter, then a statement about Jesus, who is Jesus. Then it gets into what Jesus knows, what he knows that they're doing well, what he knows that they're not doing so well. So there are oftentimes um, praise from Jesus and then correction from Jesus. And, and then he kind of ends with a challenge, something for them to do, and this reward if they will do it. So that's basically the same format that follows every letter. However, at the end of every letter, there's a phrase here that I want to point out that I believe is maybe a key to understanding all these letters collectively together. And the phrase is this, to him who conquers To him who conquers. Your version might say, to him who overcomes. King James Version, I think, New American Standard says overcomes. Other versions say the word victorious, he who is victorious. The the word conquer, overcome, is a Greek word, Nike. 
just, just like the shoe, okay? Uh, the word Nike. And it, and it really is a battlefield term. It's one who overcomes an adversary, one who overcomes a danger, one who overcomes an obstacle. And so Jesus is calling every one of these churches to overcome something. In fact, you and I have to overcome these same dangers, these same adversaries. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to collect these letters together in three categories and say that Jesus is really challenging us to overcome three great dangers. Now, by the way, this will have to, Christians at the end of time will certainly have to be overcoming these great dangers, but we have to face them today and in increasing measure, as you will see. Okay? So three great dangers that we have to overcome to be faithful to Jesus. I guess you could put it this way. Uh, faithfulness to Jesus requires you to overcome. That's the big idea of all of these letters. Faithfulness to Jesus requires you to overcome. To overcome what? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. Right? So I'm going to give you three of them. Here's the first one. Jot this down. Faithfulness to Jesus requires us to overcome the danger of complacency. The danger of complacency. Let's look at Revelation chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. This is the word of God. Uh, write to the angel to the of the church at Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardship for the sake of my name and have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. This church at Ephesus was a powerful church. I mean, they had an incredible leadership team, all right? The Apostle Paul uh, as the founding pastor, Timothy, and the Apostle John as a pastor emeritus. That's a pretty good leadership team, right? And uh, it, it was a powerful church. And, and here, Jesus commends this church. Look at verse 2. He says, I know your works, your labor, your endurance. It was a very busy church. It was an active church. And, and God had done great things through this church. The Apostle Paul started it. And uh, in the two years that Paul was there and invested in these leaders, God did some incredible things. I mean, people that were coming out of witchcraft and burning their uh, books of spells, you know, and, and people were dramatically saved. And God was doing supernatural things in this church as the gospel was ringing out in uh, this city of, of Ephesus. Uh, if you notice, uh, it says here in verse 3, they were discerning. They were discerning of who were false teachers and who were not. They were enduring. They stood against hardship. They were hardworking. I mean, there's a lot uh, good about this church, a lot to be uh, commended uh, in this church. But if you look at verse 4, he says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. The New Living Translation says, you don't love me as you did at first. Well, what does that mean? You know, a lot of times I'll talk to couples and they'll say, you know, pastor, you know, we're having marriage problems because, you know, we, we don't, we don't, we've lost that love and feeling, you know, like the song says, you know, we, it, it was great at the beginning, but now, you know, it's kind of grown cold and man, uh, you can remember what it was like when you were dating, you couldn't, couldn't wait to be, you know, with each other and couldn't stand to be apart from each other. And I mean, it was just passionate and attractive and all this kind of great stuff. And then over the course of time, there came busyness and careers and kids and, you know, meet the teacher night and ball games and, you know, all, all, the, all this stuff happens and then all of a sudden the love just kind of grows cold. <laughs> Same thing can happen in your walk with Jesus, your love for Jesus. 
And here was this very busy church all doing really great things, but they had lost their love for Jesus. You know, I was talking to our staff this week about this very thing, and I was saying, guys, listen, being must precede doing. I mean, you can't, you can't just serve without, uh, on empty, right? So many people do that, right? It, it's got to come out of your own love for the Lord Jesus. That is, you, you serve out the overflow of that. And you've got to constantly stoke the fires of love in your own heart uh, for Jesus. In this church, that love was growing cold. It's easy to be busy, and lose your love or grow distant from God. Maybe that's you. Maybe you feel that same way. Man, I'm doing all the right things. I don't do anything super bad, but I'm just losing my love for Jesus. It can happen to any of us. But if they started losing their love for Jesus in Ephesus, it was getting worse in Laodicea. If you turn over to chapter three, you'll see what's happening there. Chapter three, verse 15, he said this to the church at Laodicea. He said, I know your works, that you are neither cold or hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Wow. What, what's going on here? Hey, listen, nobody likes lukewarm. Can we agree with that? All right. You like your coffee ice cold or piping hot, right? You don't like it lukewarm in the middle. That's why somebody comes up. Can I warm that up for you? Because nobody likes lukewarm. And Jesus doesn't like lukewarm Christians. He goes, man, that makes me sick. Man, I'm like vomiting, man. I don't like lukewarm Christians. Well, well what causes a Christian to become lukewarm? Well, I think we get a hint of it here in Laodicea. This was a very wealthy church. It was a wealthy town. They had a sophisticated banking system there. They were very comfortable. They were very preoccupied with the things of the world. They were, they, they were busy. They were enjoying life. They had a lot of things that, that smack of success and looked like success. But in all the distractions and in all the uh, accommodations and in all the comfort and in all the success, their zeal for Jesus was waning away. You know, it's interesting. I, I, can, I can see that many times in people that I, I notice how they start getting super distracted with so many things going on in their life or their pursuit of their career, or their pursuit, whatever the thing may be. It could be a lot of different things. And, and all of a sudden, they don't love Jesus quite like they used to. And now they're becoming to be more and more lukewarm. Yeah, it started off kind of gradually losing their love, but they're still engaged. Now they're lukewarm. They're not really even engaged that much anymore. There are other things that are more important, other things that seem to have their attention, and they become a lukewarm Christian. And then if you allow that to happen, then you end up like the church at Sardis. Look at Sardis chapter 3, verse 1. This is probably the worst of it. He said to that church, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. The people were alive, but the church was dead. You know, they just had kind of the outward edifice of religiosity, but internally they just weren't even, weren't even engaged at all. 
I remember preaching at a dead church one time, man, I was a young pastor and they said, hey, could you come preach? I'm like, hey, you know, I preach to anybody you know, at any time. I was just eager and ready to go. And I, I remember meeting this church and I got up there to preach and I opened up the scripture and you, know, you could probably tell, man, I was just giving them both barrels. I was, I was hollering, I was moving around. I was doing everything I could, right? And I couldn't get even a pulse from the people. I mean, no amen, no eye contact, just, just kind of like this, no response at all. I mean, I remember leaving there thinking, man, that church was more like a wake than it was a worship service, you know? And, and that's what Jesus was saying to this church. Man, when you gather, it's like a wake. It's not like a worship service. You're dead. It's the very same thing that Jesus told the religious leaders of his day when he called them whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside. Man, your carpet is pristine. Your, your, your exterior of the building is right. You've got some good air conditioning going on there. Everything looks great. You've got the stained glass. You've got everything just as it should be. But yet you have no pulse. My church is like that today, right? They're, they're, they're not baptizing anybody. They're not winning anybody to Christ. Nobody's making any decisions for Christ. They're not discipling anybody. They're not raising up any leaders. They, they, they have no uh, passion for the mission. They're not planting any churches. They're not going into their community and they're not training anybody to share the God. I mean, they're not doing any of that. There's some giving, but it's chintzy giving. There's not a lot of love in the church. You can walk in. It's like walking into a refrigerator, right? It's just cold in there. It's a dead church. Complacency is, is very dangerous. I want you to hear my heart, okay? I'm your pastor and I love you, all right? I always usually say that right before I say something hard, right? <laughs> you listen to me, I love you. Complacency is dangerous. And it happens all the time. And it's so insidious. It starts off just kind of losing the love. I'm still engaged, but I'm just kind of losing my spiritual zeal. And then it gets so I'm lukewarm and I'm not really as engaged as I once was. And now I'm just spiritually flatlined and I'm not on mission with God. And I'm not really thinking. In fact, I may be rebelling against God. God help us. That's where complacency will take you. A loss of love, a loss of warmth, a loss of life. It's a very, very dangerous thing. Could that be happening to you? Are you complacent? Do you sense this creeping complacency in your own heart and life? You're just so comfortable. You're so distracted. You've got so many other things. You're not really on fire for Jesus, obeying him completely, loving him fully like you used to. So how do you overcome complacency? Well, he tells uh, the church at Ephesus, this is what they need to do. Revelation 2, 5, he says, remember then how far you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. You know, if a couple says, we're kind of losing our love, what do I do? I would follow the same advice that Jesus gives here. He says, remember what it was like when you were just in love with each other. Just go back and recall it, what it was like when you were there and, and, and repent of, of your own contribution to allowing this marriage to get where it is. Not just one person does it. It's, it's both of us have contributed to this situation and now I'm gonna start repeating what I used to do. I'm going to start doing the things and let the feelings come along behind. Jesus said that. If you, want to, if you feel this creeping complacency in your own life, he said, remember what it was like when you loved Jesus with all your heart. Uh, repent of these things that are distracting you from him and start putting him first and start doing the things you used to do. And listen, that love will come back. That love will come back. 
I love what he said to, Re- to the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3.20. He said, see, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It's like Jesus saying, listen, I'm standing right here. I'm knocking on the door. By the way, he's writing this to a church, right? I, I'm, I'm knocking on the door. If you will just open up your heart to me, I am ready to come in and renew that fellowship with you. Right now, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. Say, hey, don't get distant from me. I'm right here. If you just open up your heart to me, I would come in and renew that fellowship with you. So the first battle that we have to face, we have to overcome, is we have to overcome complacency that will strip you of your spiritual vitality. The second battle we have to overcome or danger we have to overcome is the danger of compromise. The danger of compromise. Look at verse, chapter 2, verse 12. Write to the angel of the church at Pergamum, thus said the one who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, yet you were holding on to my name and did not deny my faith, uh, your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you, where Satan lives, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now stop right there. Pergamum was a city filled with idols, filled with them. Every big city's got their iconic landmark, right? You go to San Francisco, it's the Golden Gate Bridge. You go to New York City, it's Statue of Liberty. Uh, if you went to Pergamum, uh, it would be the, it would be the, the um, uh, Acropolis. This is, it sits about a, high up on a mountain, and it was the place where they worshiped Zeus. Along with the worship of Zeus was the worship of Athena, the goddess of war, and uh, Asclepius, who was a serpent god of healing, which we see even him represented in the symbol, medical symbol today. Uh, you also had emperor worship. It was, it was a very uh, dark place, Pergamum was, filled with all kinds of idols and massive people that were participating in it. And so in verse 13, he says, I know where you live. I know it's hard to be a Christian there. I know it's a very dark place there. But he said, he said, there's this fringe group. You have some among you that have held to the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. These were basically groups of people that were trying to take these pagan practices and incorporate them into the church. They were promoting idolatry. They were promoting sexual immorality, which was very prevalent in the culture. And he said, you've got a fringe group among you that are kind of acquiescing to the culture and wanting to embrace that stuff within the church. Now, if it was a fringe group in Pergamum, then it became an infection that covered the whole church in Thyatira. The church in Thyatira, another one of the seven churches, uh, he mentions here in, in chapter 2, verse 20, that, that there was a woman there that was teaching and doesn't even call her out by name. He just calls her Jezebel. Jezebel was, if you remember in the Old Testament, she was the, uh, the, uh, the, the queen of Israel that promoted Baal worship, which was idolatry and sexual immorality. She promoted this stuff. And so he said, listen, in chapter 2, verse 20, he said, I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. In other words, you're tolerating this stuff. 
Yeah, it started with a little fringe group in Pergamum. Now it's kind of infecting the whole church in Thyatira. But you're allowing the pagan culture to come in and you're saying that's okay. And you're embracing that. You know, our, our culture is all about tolerance, right? Uh, tolerance in today's world simply means to embrace something as good, right, or to affirm it. We're to be tolerant. They, they, were, they were certainly, the church in Thyatira and Pergamum, they were very tolerant. They were very open-minded. They were very politically correct. They were very affirming. They were very progressive, as we would call it today. The only problem was Jesus wasn't having it. He said, I hold this against you, that you're tolerating this. I was talking with a pastor even this week that as I talked to him on the phone, he was literally packing up his office because he had a guy in his church that was not teaching truth. He confronted him multiple times. This guy would not change. And the guy turned the whole congregation against the pastor and they outed the pastor. And so when I talked to him, he was literally packing up his office because he dared to confront false teaching with truth. And I just had to encourage him, hey, brother, you've been a faithful servant. You've been a shepherd, man. You've been a shepherd. God's going to deal with it. This is his church. He's going to deal with it. But you've been faithful to hold on to truth. Listen, this, is, this, this acquiescence to the culture, this, tent, this leaning toward compromise is only going to get worse and worse until Christ comes. In 1 Timothy 4.1, it says, In the later times, in the latter times, some will depart from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. In other words, what's behind this is demonic in its source. In 2 Timothy 4.3, for the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want uh, to hear. And that's happening right now. That's like current page today. Whole denominations are being swept away and divided and infected with this pressure to acquiesce to the culture and compromise the truth. And they think it's very progressive, but actually it's very old. Nothing new about it. It goes all the way back to Pergamum and Thyatira. Listen, when the scriptures are no longer your compass, you will always lose your way. You understand that? When the scriptures are no longer your compass, you will always lose your way. This can happen to you. It can happen in your parenting, right? As a parent, and you've got to be pouring the truth of God's word into your children, encouraging them to walk with God, encouraging their heart for the Lord, Right? Some people say, well, I, ju I just want Johnny to be happy. Well, eh, you know, that's just not going to cut it, all right? Well, Johnny's not going to be happy all the time. Well, I just want Johnny to fit in. Well, you know, fitting in is probably not going to be uh, the, the, the preferred end. Do you hear what I just said? Fitting in is not going to be like, man, if I could fit in, that would really please Jesus. In fact, sometimes fitting in is not pleasing Jesus. I just, want, I, I just want Johnny to kind of make up his own mind when he gets older. And, you know, that we, don't get, we don't have that option. 
as Christian parents, we're to be pouring in to our children and pouring in truth and spiritual truth into their life and encouraging them to walk with God and love Jesus in these dark times. And if you don't do that, you're just giving them over to the culture. Just might as well just be handing them over. We've got to overcome compromise. We've got to overcome. We've got to fight against it and overcome it. How do we do that? Well, what did he say to Pergamum? Look at chapter 2, verse 16. One word, repent. <laughs> just repent. Say, you know what, God, I'm repenting of the fact that I've just been acquiescing to this uh, when it clearly is on your word. And God, I'm coming back to your word. I'm going to repent from that. I'm going to turn from that. I'm going to put my, uh, again, put my sights on your word. But I also love what he says to Thyatira in chapter 2, verse 25. He said, hold on to what you have until I come. That word hold on, kratos, means to grab a hold of something with your life, like a life preserver. You grab a hold of the word of God. You hold on to the word of God. What else do you have to guide you through these dark days except the compass of God's word? It just grieves my heart when I hear people go, well, I went to 10 different churches and I couldn't find one that was really teaching the Bible. I'm like, what else do you have to talk about? There's nothing else to talk about if you don't have God's word. I mean, you don't need, listen, you don't need from me just a couple of attaboys and some funny jokes. You need truth that will help you take your stand on Thursday afternoon. Or when you're dealing with that issue at home. Or you're dealing with that problem with y'all. How in the world are you going to stand unless you know God's truth? So we got to hold on to it. Hold on, Jesus said. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Take your stand. Turn away from compromise and take your stand on the word of God. That's how you fight the battle of compromise. There are three of them. Three things we have to war against. We have to overcome we have to overcome complacency. We have to overcome compromise. Let me give you this last one. We have to overcome the danger of contempt. The danger of contempt. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. Write to the angel of the church at Smyrna. Thus saith the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they're Jews but are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you and you, will be ex and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. The, the last two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, have two things in common. One is uh, they receive no correction from Jesus. Only affirmation. And secondly, they both were being persecuted for their faith. Smyrna was really getting it. Look at verse 8. They were experiencing affliction and poverty, um, mostly probably because uh, those that were opposing them were seizing their property. Uh, they, they were losing their jobs. They were literally forced into homeless existence because of their faith in Jesus. Smyrna was a very hostile place. It was a place where people were being killed. Later on, the, uh, the um, early church father, Polycarp, would be seized by a riot, by a mob, uh, tied to a stake and set on fire in this particular city. It was a very dangerous place to be a Christian. 
And what's behind all of that persecution? Look at verse 10. He said, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Now we see there's a spiritual warfare. There's a demonic resistance to the gospel in that place. The church at Philadelphia was experiencing the same thing, the same kind of persecution. Revelation 3.8, he said, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Listen, if you, if you stand firm against complacency and you're white hot for Jesus, and if you stand firm against compromise and you stand your truth, then you will face contempt. You just will. Because this world is not going to give you a standing ovation for loving Jesus. In a recent article published by an organization called The Aid to the Church in Need, they said this, quote, in terms of numbers of people involved, the gravity of crimes committed and their impact, it is clear that the persecution of Christians is today worse than any time in history, end quote. It's happening now. Christians all over the world are being persecuted for their faith. Christians in the Sudan, Christians in West Africa, Christians in um, Saudi Arabia, Christians in Korea, Christians in uh, Pakistan, Christians in Malaysia, Christians in China are being persecuted for their faith right this very minute. And Jesus said it would happen. In John 15, he said, the world hates you. Understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out from it, the world hates you. It shouldn't be a surprise that we face that kind of resistance because they resisted Jesus. They despise Jesus and they'll certainly despise you if you love him. So how do we overcome this kind of contempt, especially as we move to the latter days? Well, look at what he said to Smyrna in Revelation 2.10. He starts off and he says, don't be afraid. I love that. Hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what, well, I'm afraid of what, what will happen, what may happen. No, don't be afraid. You just love Jesus, walk with Jesus today. And, and when the time comes for you to take your stand, you take your stand. Don't be afraid. The Lord is with you. He'll stand by your side. He'll give you the words to say. He'll give you the courage in the moment that you need it. Don't be afraid. We don't, we don't need as Christians need to be rocking back in fear, right? Shutting the blinds, locking the doors. We don't need to do that. We need to be in, in, infiltrating the culture and sharing the gospel boldly while we still can. He said, don't be afraid. But then look at what else he says. Be faithful to the point of death and I will give you a crown of life. Be faithful, be faithful, be faithful. One of our church planters in our network, his name is Bishu. Bishu came from uh, southeast India, uh, still a very violent, hostile place in many ways. And Bishu, Bishu's grandfather, was one of the first to receive Christ of his people in that part of the world. He heard the gospel from missionaries, gave his life joyfully to Jesus. Bishu's grandfather was also one of the very first Christian martyrs in that village literally gave his life because of Jesus. And Bishu is now in the DFW area planting a church among Indians and Pakistanis to share the gospel. And he is fueled by this example, driven by this example of his granddad who loved the Lord faithful to the very end. Jesus said, be faithful. 
And then look at what else he says to Church of Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 8. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close. Listen, many times when you go through seasons of persecution, it is an open door for you to share the gospel. When you go through suffering, it's an open door. Everybody's eyes are on you. People want to know how you're going to handle this. And it's your opportunity to stand firm for Jesus and declare the hope that you have within you. So to be faithful to Jesus means you've got to overcome. To be faithful to Jesus, you have to overcome complacency that is constantly creeping in. To be faithful to Jesus means you have to overcome compromise and the pressure from the world to acquiesce to that culture. And, and if you don't do one of those, then the faithfulness of Jesus means you've got to overcome uh, this sense of uh, contempt of the world that is constantly coming against you. So when you look at these, these three Things. Jesus is saying, you must overcome these things to be faithful to me. So let me ask you, which one of those are you battling with right now? Which one do you have to overcome? At the end of every letter, he says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. It's kind of an odd thing. I've got ears, all right? All right. If you're hearing with your ears, are you hearing with your heart? really is what he's saying. Are you letting this sink down into you? What do you have to battle and overcome to be faithful to Jesus? It's interesting. Every one of these letters says to be faithful to Jesus, you got to overcome. But you could flip that around and say this, in order to overcome, you got to have faith in Jesus. That's where it starts. Do you know him? Do you know him? Would you bow your heads with me for a minute? What's God saying to you right now? This is a letter from Jesus to us. What does Jesus say? What is he saying to you? What do you need to overcome? What are you battling right now? Complacency? Compromise? Maybe standing firm against pushback? It all starts with your relationship with Jesus. The Bible says that Christ came to us first as as the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. He went to the cross. He died on the cross for your sin so that you could know him. You could be right with him. One day you're going to stand before Jesus. You understand that? One day, as sure as I am standing here, you will stand before Christ. And your life will be evaluated by Jesus. And the only way that you will be acceptable to him is if you have received him by faith and been washed clean by the sacrifice that he gave on the cross for you. So do you know for sure that you've given your life to Christ? Do you know for sure that you're right with God? If you were to die right now and stand before this Jesus whose eyes are like fire, do you know that you know that you're right with God? And if you're here today, you go, I'm not really sure that I know. Then you can be sure. John in his gospel said, these things are written so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know it. You can be assured of it. And so I want to give you an opportunity today, even today, to confess your sin to Jesus and ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin and to place your faith in Jesus. You can do that right where you're seated. So everybody's head is bowed. 
If right now the Spirit of God is saying to you, you need Christ. Maybe that's what he's saying to you. You need Christ. Now's the opportunity. Now's the time for you to get right with God. No longer pushing him away. No longer kicking the can down the road. You need Christ now. If that's what the Spirit of God is saying to you, then with your head bowed, just lift up your hand. And in that hand, you're saying, Pastor, pray for me. I need Jesus. And I'll lead you in a prayer right where you're seated. So lift up your hand right now. Pastor, pray for me. I need Christ in my life. I want to know for sure that I'm right with God. All right? All right? Okay, anybody else? All right, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, all right, thank you. All right, all right, thank you, thank you. Several hands. Anybody else? Okay, put your hand down. Just pray this simple prayer with me. Dear Lord, I have sinned against you. I have gone my own way. But I believe, Lord Jesus, that you died on a cross for me. And I believe you rose again from the dead. And so I'm asking you now, please wash me clean. Please make me a new person. Today, I choose to follow you. And I want to follow you all the days of my life. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. Father, I thank you so much for your word today. It's so relevant and so current to us. Lord, I pray that as we go into this week, that we would contend for the faith, God, that we would be on our battle ready posture, God, that as we go into this week, that God, we would fight the good fight. Lord, that we would resist complacency. We resist compromise, God. That we would stand firm even in the face of contempt, God, to be faithful to you. So that when you come, you'll find us faithful, Lord. Lord, we love you. Thank you even now for what you've said to us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.